Book genres are so 20th century. No, 19th century. They made sense when each book needed to be placed on a physical shelf so people could find similar titles. But what if you want to find a vampire romance, a post-apocalyptic comedy, a Western mystery where the main character is an android, a World War II adventure with magic, or a story based around a character of any race or religion or gender, set in any time or any place you choose? Scribble now brings searching for books into the 21st century, even if you're looking for one set in the 17th. Find the books you'll love by selecting the story elements that matter to you at Scribble.com. You'll never look for books the same way again. Search by story elements only at Scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. Welcome to the serialized short story audiobook, Blood is Red, written and performed by author Scott Sigler. Get the stories in Blood is Red for all ebook readers from scottsigler.com slash bloodisred or from that same page as a full-length audiobook. You can also buy the Blood is Red ebook directly from the Kindle store, the Nook store, Apple's iBooks, and from Google Books. This book contains harsh language, adult situations, and lots and lots of violence. So if you're easily offended, fire up some Justin Bieber instead and enjoy. Author's Note. This story is a partial sequel to my novel, Earthcore. Earthcore is out of print, but you can hear the audiobook for free at podiobooks.com. That is P-O-D-I-O-B-O-O-K-S dot com. The characters in this story will make much more sense if you consume that first. If you've already read Earthcore, if you're one of the thousands of junkies who curse my name every day because I haven't given you the sequel to Earthcore, then I hope you dig this rewritten and updated first chapter of Mount Fitzroy. Mount Fitzroy by Scott Sigler A hand went up, made a fist. Patrick O'Doyle crouched, gripped his FN Scar rifle. He listened. He waited. He heard only the wind the skittering sounds of snow sliding across snow. He looked far up the narrow mountain trail. In the lead, Adrian Colley, in a half-crouch, slowly sweeping his rifle left to right. If he hadn't been moving, he would have been invisible, his gray-patterned, white winter camouflage blending him into the snowy granite peak, blurring him with the light horizontal flakes that the wind picked up off the mountain, moved, and set down again. He'd heard something. Stop the team. Maybe it was nothing. That was fine. That's what Adrian was paid to do. Always err on the side of caution. Behind Adrian, Kevin Wagner. Then, Bertha O'Doyle, Patrick's wife. The less than happy Bertha O'Doyle, thanks to Patrick's choice of gear for this mission. Women, what could you do? Behind Patrick, the last member of the team, Marcus Weaver. All of them dressed in winter gear so well-tuned to the landscape that once they stopped, they all but vanished. Five soldiers, one mission. Up ahead, Adrian stood and waved the team forward. He started up the slope again. The rest followed. Patrick hated being in the middle. He'd always been point, first to face danger. Or at least bringing up the rear, protecting everyone's asses. 
But that wasn't who he was anymore. He was the leader, the commander. Someone else out in front, someone else behind. The commander was least expendable. That, and the sad fact that he wasn't a spring chicken. Hell, at 41, he was a little more than twice Adrian's age. Ah, to be 20 years old, walking point. Those were the days. Patrick looked at the digital map strapped to his wrist. The beacon showed as a clear green dot. They were close, just a few more minutes. They'd waited weeks for this moment. Two weeks of training, of melding the five-person team into a cohesive combat unit. Then a week of reconnaissance. Four days in, three days back, surviving off rations, disturbing the environment as little as possible. Satellite footage was a wonderful thing, and it helped, but nothing beat the familiarity of boots on the ground. That familiarity went into planning routes, the best way to get to the plateau. It would have been easier to follow the path discovered by Sonny McGinnis, but Patrick wasn't taking any chances that the noisy-ass prospector might have drawn attention. After the training, the recon, the planning, they had set out. Four days up the mountain, taking their time, making sure that they weren't followed, making sure that traps didn't await them. There was no rush, really. These assholes had waited thousands of years to be wiped out. A few more days didn't matter. They had bought an entire village four miles away. Not a few buildings, mind you. The entire village. Earthcore money was sweet that way. It bought cool things. Things like villages, of course, but also mercenaries. Body armor, guns, lots of guns. And even, now brace yourself, kiddies, because this is not your typical Cracker Jack's prize, a Russian suitcase nuke. He wore the nuke in a backpack. He'd gone into battle strap before, but this took the cake. Nothing like hauling in a .5 megaton parting gift to say, thanks for the dance, comrade. The nuke. That was what had Bertha's panties all in a bunch. At that moment, she stopped moving up, looked back at him, as if reading his mind. Even twenty meters away, he saw her eyes narrow in anger. Patrick tried his best smile. She just turned her back to him, kept pace with Adrian and Kevin. Women. She had told him not to wear the nuke. She told him to make one of the others carry it. He'd insisted. She told him again. She'd threatened him. Still, he'd insisted. Then, she did something she had never done, for any man, ever. She begged. Still, he insisted. He wouldn't ask such a duty of another. He'd hand-carry the bomb in himself and nuke that poison race into non-existence. Back in Utah... The beasties had had their own nuke, and it was a whopper. But he couldn't be sure that there would be a similar bomb three miles below the surface of Mount Fitzroy. Even if there was, Patrick had no idea if he could set it off. He couldn't be sure about much, actually. He didn't even know if the Roctopi were still in there. If they were down there, time to take the nuke train to Extinctionville. If they weren't, Earthcore could figure out how to coerce the governments of Argentina and Chile to allow mining of a five-mile-long chunk of platinum and iridium. Revenge or riches. Either way, Patrick, Patrick's boss Barbara Yakely, and Patrick's pissed-off panties-in-a-bunch wife Bertha won. Patrick saw Adrian crest a ridge, walk between two boulders, then disappear from line of sight. The point man had arrived. A minute later, Wagner went over the edge, then Bertha. Finally, Patrick slid between the two boulders and found himself on the small plateau, 
The towering, nearly rectangular pinnacle of Mount Fitzroy's main peak towered majestically above them, rising up from the back edge of the small, mostly level space. O'Doyle looked around the area. Three team members, all dressed in winter camo over body armor, forming a wide perimeter, rifles facing out. They were disciplined, quiet, professional, perfect. And at the center of this perfect circle stood a short black man, arms folded across his chest, head tilted at a sharp angle to the right. Son of a bitch, Sonny McGinnis said. Y'all come in quieter than a church fart. O'Doyle said nothing. He kept his right hand fixed firmly on his weapon. His left hand extended out and waved down three times, urging Sonny to get low. Sonny started laughing. <laughs> they ain't here, Van Gogh. I'd know if they was here. Van Gogh, Sonny's oh-so-clever nickname for Patrick, referencing the right ear that had been burned off long ago. Sonny, be quiet. Show me. Sonny nodded, walked to the back of the plateau where the mountain stone wall again rose up to the sky. There, at the base, Sonny pointed out a small, dark spot. Even smaller than Patrick had feared. He'd get through. He had to get through. The rest of the team shouldn't have too much trouble. Not one of them was over five foot seven. Bertha had taken to calling them the Munchkins. Men selected as much for their small size as for their various military skills. Marcus Weaver slid between the boulders, and the team was complete. Almost time to enter. All right, people, Patrick said. Bring it in. They walked to him, their eyes alert, still taking in information from all directions. Adrian stopped. He looked east, stared at the sky. You hear something? Adrian kept staring, then shook his head. Thought I did, but I guess it's just the wind. Won't be any wind where we're going. Y'all ready? His men nodded, as did his wife. All carried identical FN SCAR rifles chambered in 7.62 NATO. All had to hump 13 magazines. Patrick had 20. Bertha managed 15. Each also carried identical Glock 22s chambered for 40 caliber Smith & Wesson. All of that shit would probably stop a octopi, or one of those infernal silver bugs with one round. Probably. He had no idea how many they might face, but they were heading into an extensive tunnel system and might be there for days. Space and weight were huge considerations. They also shared common headgear, a fully enclosed, custom-fitting Kevlar helmet with a carbon-reinforced titanium shell, low-frequency transmitters for communicating in the long tunnels, slide-down night-vision goggles that would make the pitch-black caverns light up like the early morning. Beneath all of it, Cool suits custom-fitted to each wearer, allowing them to survive for days in temperatures that could exceed 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Finish it off with grenades, ropes, climbing gear, rations, canteens. The crew was ready for a big-time spelunk. From there, it got personal. Bertha carried five Claymore mines. Maybe she didn't have a swimsuit model's body, but she was a warhorse that could haul more than her fair share. Wagner's backpack held an experimental EMP emitter, a one-time device that would short out any electronics in a half-mile radius. Marcus hauled a four-shot RPG launcher and his lucky iguana foot. Adrian didn't carry any heavy hardware. He was point, and at 5'5", five five, 135 pounds, he wasn't suited to hauling excess gear. His special items were a 12-gauge Benelli M4 shotgun and a pair of fucking tomahawks. 
In a narrow tunnel, the semi-auto Benelli would splatter everything in sight, stone walls channeling the blast, making the shot bounce and ricochet in a lethal lead rain. The tomahawks were single pieces of black, tooled stainless steel with leather-wrapped handles. He wore one on each thigh. O'Doyle had thought it cheesy at first, but the little man demonstrated his prowess with the weapons as silent death dealers in hand-to-hand fights or as thrown weapons up to 30 yards. His team looked ready. Game faces, one and all. It was time to go. Time to fight the nastiest enemy he had ever faced. Time to avenge Connell Kirkland. Sonny's job had been the easiest and at the same time took the most balls. He had hiked into the mountains, alone, reconnoitered miles of uninhabited peaks and valleys. The area was blocked off by the Argentinian government, marked off as one of their national historical monuments. Couldn't exactly drop survey teams in to drill down or execute that tomography bullshit Angus Cool had used back in Utah. Angus. That little fuck. Patrick often daydreamed that Angus had died in a pool of magma, as slowly as humanly possible. The Utah debacle, however, had given Earthcore knowledge of how these alien nests were structured. Somewhere up on this mountain would likely be a long, narrow tunnel, a tunnel that led all the way down. On Funeral Mountain, they dubbed that path the Linus Highway. That was Sonny's job, to find Mount Fitzroy's Linus Highway, then call in the location. Forty years of prospecting and mountaineering let Sonny slide across rough mountain footing with a surety that made a mountain goat look like a clumsy buffoon. He was the best in the world at what he did. Hey, Van Gogh, you sure you can fit that big ass of yours in that little hole? Sonny was the best, sure, but he came with liabilities. Among them, his penchant for being crotchety, annoying, superstitious, and, worst of all, loud. Those drawbacks had made Patrick want to use an X-Ranger for recon. Sonny found out and instantly went over Patrick's head, right to Barbara Yakely. The old prospector was terrified of the caves, and he wasn't going in, but, as he told Barbara, he'd be dipped in pig shit and dragged naked through a cornfield before he'd allow the mission to go on without contributing. Sonny hadn't been buddies with Connell, but the old man wanted payback just the same. Respect can be just as powerful a motivator as friendship. Barbara called the shots. It was her money, after all, and EarthCore was her company, so she ordered Sonny to be the scout. O'Doyle had conceded, not that he'd really had any choice. Now, in mission time, he wished he'd just broken Sonny's leg to keep the man out of the action. Patrick didn't like Army Rangers, but at least an Army Ranger would keep his damn mouth shut. Sonny, be quiet! Sonny's face wrinkled up in a well-worn expression that said, Nobody tells me what to do. You can play soldier boy all you want. It won't make no difference. The tunnel entrance is clear. Now get your asses in there and do the job so I can go home. Patrick stood to his full six-foot-four height. He glared down at Sonny. A perfect insertion ruined because the old fool just had to talk. The wind died down, just a bit. In the negative space... O'Doyle heard something. Something mechanical. Adrian looked east. There it is again. Patrick nodded. I don't recognize it. It sounded almost like an ultralight engine. He scanned the horizon, looked above it, looking for the vehicles that put an engine and a propeller on a hang glider. Nothing. Adrian walked to the plateau's edge. He scanned, 
left to right, then pointed down the face of the mountain. Shit, what are those? Patrick and Sonny ran to Adrian, saw what Adrian saw, but Patrick didn't have the answer. Out in the gray of the late afternoon winter, it looked like six tiny airplanes. Twin props on wings attached to something about the size of a streamlined coffin, all of it painted to match the white and gray pattern of the mountainside and the surrounding hills. Four small fins in an X configuration made up the tail. Far quieter than a helicopter, small enough to get close without being seen. They were coming in from 200 meters out. The front two tilted up, flew higher, then leveled out with a plateau. Down! Patrick reached out and grabbed Sonny, tucking him under his left arm like a child carrying a teddy bear. The wind picked up speed again, but it wasn't loud enough to drown out the sound of high-caliber machine gun fire. His team moved fast and efficiently, five highly trained professional soldiers, but it wasn't fast enough. The first burst kicked up strobe light sparks as the bullet smacked into the plateau's granite surface. Three of those bullets caught Wagner in the back. One hit his backplate, another his right shoulder plate, both survivable. The one that killed him took him in the right ass cheek. The bullet punched through cloth and skin, then ripped through his hip socket like a wrecking ball through porcelain. Wagner spun from the impact, most of his body going one way, his right leg going another. Son of a bitch, said Sonny, who was still tucked under Patrick's arm. Everyone dove behind rocks, then popped up and returned fire. One of the tiny planes dropped sharply to the right, falling out of the line of sight. A small missile shot out of the other's nose, trailing a line of white smoke. Patrick ducked behind his boulder just before a bang preceded the tinkling death sound of shrapnel skittering off rocks and across the plateau. Weaver popped up, RPG launcher on his shoulder. His trail of smoke almost perfectly paralleled the first, closing the distance in less than a second. The twin-engine aircraft shattered in a fireball. Smoke floated up as airplane pieces plummeted down. Now only a hundred meters out, the next two aircraft tilted up, they were making their attack run. Patrick had seen many, many wounds in his day. A snap judgment was all he had time for, but it was enough. With enemy aircraft coming in, he had to get his people into that tunnel, but Kevin Wagner's wound was too severe. Even if Patrick brought him along, he would die anyway. To the tunnel! Move! Move! He kept his hold on Sonny as he sprinted to the tiny opening. He set Sonny down, pushed him inside. O'Doyle turned, knelt, and aimed, firing off a steady stream of bullets at the next two aircraft, which leveled out and returned fire. Bullets sparking off of stone, Adrian and Marcus slipped inside the low tunnel mouth, followed by Bertha. Patrick turned and followed, diving in. His gear caught. He was too big. His arms pinned in front of him. He wiggled, thrashed, waiting for the bullet that would find his ass, his legs, his feet. Hands grabbed his wrists and yanked. Equipment and stone dug into his hips, his thighs, but finally, he slid through. Move down the tunnel, he barked, climbing to his feet in the low ceiling space. Nowhere for those things to land, so you can bet they've got ground troops close behind. No need to talk quietly anymore, at least for a bit. If there were rock to pie in these tunnels... They now knew they had company.
Kevin Wagner lie on the plateau, panting, trying to cope with the pain. He was no rookie. He wasn't stupid. He would die here. He wanted to scream at O'Doyle to come back, but he couldn't. He was already cold. He didn't have long. He tried to control his last breaths, tried to taste the air. Weren't you supposed to savor every last second or some bullshit like that? Who would take care of his kid? Would the guy who was already fucking his wife keep on fucking her? Maybe the douchebag would marry her. Maybe raise Kevin's son as his own. That wouldn't be so bad. The boy needed a daddy. Maybe the guy would feed Bubba. Kevin felt a pang of loss. Old Bubba would be one broken-hearted black lab. A buzzing sound filled his ears. It took him a few of his final seconds to realize that it wasn't some death sound, that he wasn't imagining it. It was real. Those weird little planes. They were over him. They were straight up and down, four fin tails lowering to the plateau. In his final moments, Kevin Wagner started to laugh. Fucking VTOL personal airplanes? How the hell could they have planned for that? He watched the closest one lower, lower. Twin engines now acting like helicopter rotors. Lower. The tail almost touching. Then the four fins split into a wide pyramid of landing gear. The thing came to a rest. The little engines started to spin down. What had Sonny said? Oh yeah. Son of a bitch. The other planes were doing the same thing, landing tail first on the rock. Kevin shivered. Things started to blur. He heard people talking, couldn't make out the words. At the very end, he wondered if there was an afterlife, and if dogs were allowed in it. He hoped so, hoped that someday he might see Bubba one more time. The final puffin landed on the plateau. As the twin engine spun down, a man got out. He was much smaller than the other three armed men who waited for him. The man had knotted masses of burn scars across the right side of his face and scalp, as if someone had splattered him with burning oil. Most of his hair was gone on that side, but what remained was bright red and stuck out in wild tufts. He walked up to the one-legged body and flipped it over. Damn it, the man said already dead. You're next, O'Doyle. Angus Cool surveyed the plateau. Four little airplanes standing on end, pointing up to the darkening sky. It looked like something off the cover of a 70s science fiction magazine. He'd hoped to go in with all five of his men, but two of them had been careless enough to get killed. Six more puffins were on the way. The plateau had enough room for four of them to land. The other two men would just have to find the closest spot, then catch up. He wasn't waiting. He would enter in with the three men that he had. Let's go! He walked to the tunnel entrance. Get in there, track them down, and kill them. We do that, we claim a mountain's worth of pure platinum. Calderon turned to him. The meanest of the bunch. Not the biggest, but the unquestioned leader. And the other things you told us about? Those rocktopi things? If it moves, kill it. What could be better? The merc nodded, then entered the tunnel. The other two mercs followed. Angus went in last. The platinum was the main reason for this trip, but now there was an even better motivation. 
Angus Cool would see Patrick O'Doyle and Bertha Librand dead. What could be better indeed? Author's note for Mount Fitzroy. All right, this is a long note, so feel free to skip it if you like and be done with me. I don't mind if you only read the fun stuff as long as you're happy. When I look back at my unpredictable career as a writer, I can point to one pivotal moment where I started the shift from unpublished wannabe to an actual real-life guy who works full-time spinning bullshit. That moment? The choice to release my novel Earthcore as a free, serialized podcast. When I say I was unpublished, it's not entirely true. In 1999, Earthcore was picked up by iPublish, that's the letter I, lowercase, publish, a division of AOL Time Warner iPublish was way ahead of its time, too far ahead in fact, which contributed to its eventual downfall. The imprint had a grand idea. Let authors upload the first three chapters of a manuscript, then have those same authors read other submissions and vote in their favorites. In fact, you had to read and vote on three manuscripts before you could upload yours, a way to prime the pump and get the action flowing. What iPublish did that was so genius at the time was turn aspiring authors into free slush pile reviewers. The editors at iPublish monitored the voting, then read and considered only the manuscripts that earned the highest rankings. This not only cut down on the amount of crap they had to read, it gave them a heads up on books that might be ignored by traditional editors, but would resonate with the end reader. Keep in mind, this was 1999 way ahead of dig.com or other sites where user votes determine the quality of content. I submitted Earthcore. It ran the gamut of voting and did well enough to be considered by the editors. Before I publish, many, many editors had rejected that book, saying things like, We don't know what shelf to put it on. Or, It's too cross-genre. We don't know if it's horror, sci-fi, or a thriller. Well, the user voting system at iPublish didn't give a crap what genre it was, the end readers just liked it. Paul Whitcover at iPublish gave it a spin, liked it, then offered me a contract. A book deal! Whoopee! The company put Earthcore out first as an ebook, also about 10 years ahead of the current ubiquitousness of that format, then as a print on demand paperback, and iPublish was also way ahead of its time there as well, way ahead of any other major publisher in experimenting with the print on demand technology. The book did well enough in both formats that they decided to roll it out as a mass-market paperback, due out in May of 2002. Hello world, I had arrived! I was going to be in every bookstore in the United States. Dream come true, right? Enter the post-9-11 recession, with its feathered hair, pegged pants, and flipped-up collar. The economy took a big hit. AOL Time Warner decided to scrap all divisions that weren't profitable. As iPublish had yet to turn a profit, it, along with Paul, and all those ahead-of-their-time ideas, were tossed on the scrap heap. As was Earthcore. Dream crushed. Paperback canceled. It took my agent and I three years to get the rights back. When we finally did, and started submitting to other publishers, any buzz about the iPublish deal was long gone. Goodbye, publishing offers. Hello, my old friend, Mr. Ejection Letter. Then came 2005, when I learned about podcasting, this little thing created by Adam Curry and Dave Weiner. Hmm, weekly installments of audio content? Subscriptions over the internet? Free? 
crazy talk. I've covered this story many times in many places, so I'll skip a few steps. Suffice to say, my free audiobook, EarthCore, generated many online fans. It was the first podcast novel I put out, and as such, I have a lot of fans that demand the sequel. Did I say I put out EarthCore in 2005? Yep. First episode, March of 2005. I finished the story four months later, which means those fans have been waiting for the sequel for six years. Oi. To add to the problem, I pretty much promised the sequel will come out, quote, next year, end quote, for all of those six years, making me a liar six times over. In 2006, I think it was, I attended the Podcast Expo. I wrote the first chapter of the sequel for a live recording. People, myself included, thought the whole sequel would be out in 2008 or so. Lies! Obviously, the sequel has not come out. The full sequel, still in my head only, not on paper anywhere, save for the snippet you just listened to. Lucky you. Maybe next year. You have been listening to the Blood is Red serialized short story audiobook, written and performed by author Scott Sigler. This audiobook was produced by A. Kovacs and engineered by Ariok Morningstar. Theme music is the song Greed by Separation of Sanity. For more information on the author or to hear his free weekly fiction podcast, go to scottsigler.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.